people think of civil rights as basically a thing that got rid of, you know, segregated water fountains and integrated the races. And yeah, it did do that. But, you know, civil rights law has done a lot more than that. I mean, it's forced race and sex consciousness onto institutions. Richard Hanania wasn't really known as a political commentator until 2020. But then the pandemic happened and huge numbers of people became addicted to social media. And he emerged from his cocoon in academia to start pushing some hot cultural buttons. Hanania is proudly anti-woke and he's won favor among a conservative readership. But at the same time, he's not been scared to go against the preferences of many people who would otherwise be squarely in his political tribe. So while he's written pieces that attack wokeness and criticize civil rights law, he's also argued that the mainstream media is good, actually, and that liberals are more culturally savvy than conservatives. He's written in favor of immigration and diversity, while also pushing back against the liberal obsession with race. Hanania admits he's a bit of a troll, but he also makes a strong case for what he calls enlightened centrism people who hold views that can't easily be categorized as right or left. Hanania is a fascinating new voice in politics and media, and I bet we'll be hearing a lot more from him in the years to come. In this conversation, we dive into his story and what informs his worldview. We discuss how he sees politics as a kind of competition, and we look ahead to the future of the culture wars. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie. And here is Richard Hanania. So Richard Hanania, thank you very much for joining us on The Active Voice. Thanks for having me, Hamish. Glad to be here. You seem to me to have kind of come from nowhere. You've burst onto the scene as a cultural critic and a political commentator. You've been on Tucker Carlson. You're kind of big on Substack. You're on podcasts, left, right, and center. And I just wonder, how did you get here? I sort of stumbled into it. I mean, I was an academic, like nobody was paying attention to, you know, as of 2020. And then I just started dipping my toes in the water. I started tweeting a bit. I got you know, a little attention. So when Substack came along, I wasn't looking to be a blogger, but one of the things about Substack and one of the things I praise Substack for is making an experience very easy. So I started writing just like a few blogs that really didn't go anywhere. And then I wrote this one piece that blew up in early 2021 called Why is Everything Liberal? And then you look at the Substack subscriber list and it just goes up like that. I mean, that's really the inflection point. And it's really been growing ever since. Why did that article, Why is Everything Liberal, go viral, do you think? I think it has a good headline. I mean, that's very important. I think some of my best or most read articles have had, you know, very punchy sort of one sentence or like three to five words. I think I'm good at that. What I try to do, and this is what you couldn't do so much in academia, is address an important topic Use the best evidence that you have for it. Use a lot of stuff that's common sense, a couple of things that you might have to look up, something people are interested in, and actually give them an answer. It's probably this, it's not that. And I think that that's like something, you know, this wokeness stuff, it's sort of been dominating really the last, you know, we're going on a decade now. We've just been talking about this stuff nonstop. In 2020, you know, we were in the midst of it. It was sort of the high point of it all. 
And so right after the Floyd protests in summer of 2020, you know, it was like at a different level. That was the peak. I mean, because you saw like every institution in the country just putting out these statements about, you know, the systemic racism, you know, we're going to change and this and that. And people were just like sort of wondering what's going on. Like, why is every institution talking the same way? Why are, you know, corporations joining? We used to not think of them as the most necessarily, you know, liberal or progressive or woke institutions. And, you know, I wanted to explain that. And so that article, I think, told people something that was backed up by data that I think fit with common sense experience, what they understood about the world. And then the sort of the civil rights stuff was like another way of approaching the same question and that built upon it. So yeah, I think those are sort of the ingredients to have something that gets a lot of attention. So what was your conclusion in that piece? Why is everything liberal? Well, you know, there's a democracy where we vote for, you know, the people we like and everybody's vote is equal. And then we have, you know, the world of activism where everyone is not equal. It really depends on how much you care about different things. So if you look at like the country, it's about evenly divided between liberals and conservatives, between Republicans and Democrats. But if you look at the people who dedicate their lives to politics, it's really no contest. So if you like ask people, you know, have you protested for a political cause? Have you signed a petition in the last so many years? If you ask people how important is politics in your life, you know, or, you know, have you cut off somebody from your life over political differences? So you have all these measures of how much people care. And liberals, people on the left, and, you know, liberals, you know, defined in the American context, you're not necessarily a universal theory for everywhere. They just care more about politics. And you can see that in the data. And I think when you see people, you know, protesting and things like that, you see that they're generally left wing. And that has an effect. I mean, that's going to pressure institutions. Okay, I want to come back to the politics stuff. And there's some meaty things to dig into. But first, I want to Find out more about you and what led you to this place. You're a public intellectual. You're writing these sometimes provocative takes on politics and the culture or takes that are interpreted in a provocative way. What was your upbringing like? Like, how did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. My parents were Middle Eastern immigrants. I think like a lot of the people who end up in my situation, I mean, the standard like sort of prototype is somebody who probably grew up on the East Coast, who had a family who were either writers or in politics in some way. They went to an elite, you know, undergrad school, high socioeconomic status. I really, I don't fit into sort of any of those categories. Like I said, my parents were immigrants who lived in the South suburbs of Chicago are not the nice suburbs. The North suburbs are tend to be nicer. So it was the South suburbs, even when I meet someone from Chicago and they're a writer or something, it's always the North suburbs. You don't get many Southsiders. You know, most of my friends when I was growing up didn't go to college or their parents didn't go to college. A lot of them didn't end up going to college. And I was sort of aimless for most of my upbringing. I was, you know, not a good high school student. I remember I freshman year. I was like number 390 out of a class of 400. I really just didn't put any effort into college at all. And then I just went to the University of Colorado just because I don't know why. I just, <laughs> just no, literally no reason. Like mountains? Yeah, I just thought I was like mountains, Colorado. That seems like a cool place to be. And so I just went there. And then I went to law school because once again, I was still aimless. We're getting late now. We're getting into my 20s. I'm still aimless. I still have no clue, you know, what I'm doing. Finally, I think, you know what? I like reading. I like writing. I want to be an intellectual. What should I do? Okay, I should be an academic. So I go to UCLA. I study political science. I decide, okay, at this point, I'm starting to realize I have intellectual interest. The, you know, law school at the University of Chicago was the, really the first time in my life I was exposed to other people who had intellectual interests, really exposed to an environment with a lot of ideas, you know, smart students and really smart, accomplished, famous professors. And that, you know, sparked something to be a little bit like, okay, I can be an academic maybe. And then I get to academia and I go to UCLA, you know, for my PhD in political science. 
And, you know, I'm disillusioned with it. It's not just for the normal. I mean, people talk about, you know, politics and, you know, the bias and all this and that. And that's true. But, you know, it was more of the sense that I didn't think I could do, you know, interesting work. It's so narrow. It's so specialized. It's so, you know, about getting the right citations. It's about these, you know, jumping through these sort of arbitrary hoops. And, you know, I could have done that if, you know, forced to. And I did do that for a little while. But, you know, there was always like a sense that maybe there could be something better. I got a fellowship at Columbia after I graduated. I got my PhD in 2018. And while at Columbia, I think this helped me with sort of getting attention because people would say, oh, this guy's at Columbia. You know, he's sort of, he must know something or he's like a real person. And, you know, it gives you some credibility. So I started tweeting. I started writing a few blogs and that just took off. And thankfully, I didn't have to stay in academia for long. It became an easy decision at that point. So what were your parents' jobs? I know we left them behind a few sentences ago, but you said you grew up in the poor suburbs of Chicago and your parents were immigrants. Yeah, my dad was first an engineer and then he was in real estate. So he had some commercial properties within the city. And then my mom didn't work when I was growing up. She teaches English as a second language after we grew up. But yeah. Are they very politically involved? Not really, no. They watch, you know, cable news. So they did, I think, get more politics as they got older, but they weren't that political when I was growing up. And what country did they come from? My dad is Palestinian Christian and my mom is Jordanian. Why did they come to America? You know, America's better than the Middle East <laughs> for the same reason that a lot of people come here, I think. Do they read your stuff? Yeah, I think so. But I try to steer them away from it. It's like, they're not like super intellectual, right? So it's not like they're going to read it and be like, oh, you know, this was a great point. Let's have a, you know, political discussion or something. It's like they like to like, you know, they, oh, our son is famous. Oh, it's like, it's like you know, it's, I just don't want the attention, right? Not that I'm that famous, but it's like very famous to them. I just don't want to deal with it. So I, I try to steer them away from it as much as I can. So 2020, you start coming on the scene. What was it that moved you to start tweeting about these topics and start writing about these topics? They were just always topics I was interested in. So I've been, you know, interested in, you know, politics really since I was probably like late teens. But like, you know, I didn't know anybody like, you know, I I see these people, they had all these friends who worked on campaigns or they were activists or they were writers or this or that. I had like none of that in my life, right? Like there wasn't like seen as like any kind of option. So I've, you know, been interested in politics for a very long time. And so, you know, I started writing publicly. I mean, luckily I could write about the things that I was interested in. Yeah, this is why it's so much better than, academia, where it's like, you could do the topic that you're interested in, but you're always sort of fitting it into the sort of keyhole. There's a way of like communicating and there's like sort of a research agenda and you're sort of, you know, worming your way in. There's no room for like creativity just coming out there and saying, everyone who's been looking at this issue, you know, has been missing something or everyone thinks X, but it's actually Y, right? And I wanted to do that. So my interests really haven't changed over time. It's just like, you know, the outlet and the method and the ways I could express what I thought. Do you think everyone should be leaving academia to become writers? I think so, yeah. I do tell people, it depends on the field. Like there's some people who are doing, you know, high level biological research or stuff. They need like giant labs and they need, you know, research teams. So I couldn't tell those people what to do. But as far as like people in the social sciences and people who write about politics or economics or anthropology, yeah, look, you know, it depends. Like if you're just like a mediocre person who just wants a mediocre life, like, 
the thing about being outside of academia is like you have to make it in a market. You're not making it just because they have an anthropology department and they have to hire an anthropologist and you might have to have the right connection and you might be there and nobody in the world would actually be interested in your work. If you write stuff that nobody in the world would actually ever be interested in, you know, reading, that may be, you know, academia. But if you're interested in like sort of big questions that like a lot of people would actually want to know about stuff like economic growth or like, you know, political differences between Republicans or Democrats or the things that, you know, you'll see in the Atlantic or you'll see in the New York Times then yeah, I, you know, I would say to people, it's not as difficult as you think. So you write a lot about woke culture and you write in such a way that you're not scared of upsetting liberals. You're not scared of upsetting conservatives. Yeah. Maybe you find a way to even upset some centrists. <laughs> but particularly with the wokeism stuff, why is that such a focus for you? I think that I got annoyed with it. I've read, you know, a lot of actually different topics that I could see the traffic and I could see, you know, tweets, which ones take off. And it's always the wokeness stuff. And that's what's trending on Twitter. That's what people care about. And I think there are just like some things here that are sort of fundamental to the human condition, right? Ethnic relations, right? Relations between men and women, right? Like people are obsessed with, you know, sexuality, right? These are like tend to be things that like, I think humans, you know, just of the very sort of primal nature, they care about it. Then we have some things that in American history are, you know, add sort of fuel to the fire. So the situation of black Americans, you know, we have the civil rights movement, the continuing inequalities between blacks and whites. And I think it's really taken off, I think, with the internet. The internet has sort of, you know, allowed this kind of atomization and this sort of polarization and people sort of indulging in their identities. And then, you know, civil rights law, which has been around for a really long time, which a lot of people don't know about, but which I brought to people's attention, has sort of had a large role to play here. You actually blame a lot of institutional problems on civil rights law. Yeah, I have a book coming out in a few months that people can pre-order right now. Yeah, called The Origins of Woke. So it's a pretty ambitious book. And I do argue that this is the origins of woke, actually. People think of civil rights as basically a thing that got rid of, you know, segregated water fountains and integrated the races. And yeah, it did do that. But, you know, civil rights law has done a lot more than that. I mean, it's forced race and sex consciousness onto institutions. If you have an institution that just doesn't want to care about the stuff, you really can't because you have to make sure that like if you have a test for hiring people, you know, you're not managing one race at the expense of another. Things like government contracting, government says to its contractors, look, you have to have sort of racial timetables and goals, right? And actually the HR industry, one of the arguments of the book, sort of emerged out of this necessity, this sort of way to deal with government regulations. And so, yeah, I think this is another thing that I think, you know, has really taken off because it's a topic that people are interested in, but people didn't have a story of causation. They really had no idea. It just seemed like this thing just sort of popped up out of nowhere and the world was going insane. And I think one thing that I've, you know, done in my work and I'm continuing to do is just say like, no, you can like sort of, and this is maybe give a little bit of credit to academia. My sort of background in law and my background in political science can say, look, I can go back to the history. I can sort of trace this and I can tell you, you know, to the best of my ability where this came from. And I think I have a story there. It's a pretty gutsy thing to say. The assumption I think many people have, many God-fearing liberals, will be civil rights law is unquestionably good. It's served an important purpose. It's tied up with Martin Luther King and the history of the struggle for black rights and equal rights in America. So like, are you trying to throw a firebomb at this sacred document, this sacred institution, or are you trying to provoke something else? So it's really is partly in the framing, right? So I framed it in a sort of inflammatory way mainly because I'm talking to conservatives and it wasn't that hard of a sell. I, they're the ones who are going to have to sort of take action here. But, you know, you could say, well, 
if you oppose a civil rights act, okay, that's very controversial, right? But you could say, I oppose affirmative action. Now, what people don't know is affirmative action is justified by reference to the Civil Rights Act, right? So it's not a big deal to say I oppose affirmative action, but, you know, if you trace it to the Civil Rights Act. So it's really, it is the framing. And what I've tried to do is say, look, there's civil rights, there's civil rights law. There was some, you know, good things in there, but it's traced to these other things that people don't like. The idea that if a test has one group doing better than another, that test is necessarily racist. The burden of proof is on you to show that this is justified. The idea that if, you know, police arrest one group more than the other, you know, forget about what the crime rates are. You know, that's a sign of, you know, discrimination. You know, this is Title VI, this is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And then there's stuff that came later, this kind of, you know, uh, policing of like language. That's also Civil Rights Act. I mean, because you could be sued, you know, into oblivion if you're a company and you make someone uncomfortable right? This is also justified by the Civil Rights Act, uncomfortable based on a few characteristics, right? Like race, gender, now increasingly sexual orientation. So I don't think it's inflammatory. I mean, it's in the framing, right? And I think that like the conservative movement, which is where a lot of my audience is, they're familiar with these debates, like people in like the Federalist Society and the people, you know, I talked to there, they know there have been court cases around these topics. And, you know, the conservative justice ruled one way and the liberal justice ruled the other way. So it was an easy sell as far as talking to them. And then being able to say, like, look, these are the cultural things you hate. These are these legal doctrines that you don't like, but you don't think are that important. They're just like an afterthought. But there's a connection here, right? And you could take on the law and you could potentially change the culture. And so that's the audience. And like if I was trying to talk to everyone. I probably would have framed it a little bit differently. And I am trying to talk to everyone to a limited extent. But I did think like going to conservatives and saying, you hate this stuff. There's something you could do about it. X, Y, Z. That sort of informed my framing, like going into this, because that's how I thought something was likely to get done. Are you mostly speaking to conservatives with your work? On civil rights stuff, I think so, yes. I mean, and it ends up being that way because the woke stuff gets so much more attention than other things. And this is not by design, but so I end up, I think, with a largely conservative audience. I don't want an exclusively conservative audience. And I've done a survey of my readers. It's not an exclusively conservative audience. It's more a libertarian audience, which, you know, makes sense. That fits with my politics more. And so, no, I don't always say, oh, I need to talk to conservatives on every issue. It does end up like I see a lot of them in my replies on Twitter or Substack, and then I like get really annoyed by something they say. And oftentimes I'm just writing something because someone has really annoyed me. And so I do end up getting annoyed with them. But like that ends up writing articles that liberals tend to like. And so that sort of changes your audience too. But I found that it's very sticky. Like if you're woke or anti-woke will determine your audience. You could be left-wing on every other issue. If you're anti-woke, you're going to have a conservative audience. And I think it's the same. If you're woke, you're going to have a left-wing audience. And this is just, this sort of just seems like the main divide of our politics. Do you feel like you fit somewhere into that dichotomy? Are you anti-woke? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so people are showing up to read your stuff first because they're anti-woke, and then they want to see what other things you have to say about the world and how it's working because you have won their trust on being anti-woke. Yeah, I mean, a, a large portion of them, it's exactly that. A lot of the audience is just people who came from the woke stuff, stayed for other things. But, you know, there's people who've came through uh, sort of the Tyler Cowen GMU route. These people are into sort of progress studies, you know, more conventional libertarians, people who might not care that much about woke. Them too. And, you know, I have a liberal audience too. So, yeah, I, I had an article, you know, recently on uh, enlightened centrism. And I sort of tried to talk about, you know, what I look for people. And I think people can be right, left or center. But I think they all fit what I call enlightened centrism. And I talk about what traits they tend to have in common. I was going to ask you about that piece. We'll come back to it. The woke thing. So the way I see it, a lot of people might sort of, even if they're not particularly informed about where the politics of it lie, 
might reflexively be work because they feel like it is a path of compassion. And it's understanding the oppressed and feeling for the oppressed and feeling for the little guy. And that has taken hold a lot in some powerful institutions in society. And we've gone through an era recently where it's peaked, or maybe it's still actually powerful. It's still like finding its way into some parts of the media and the government and then academia. And so it's very hard or has been very hard for some people to come out against workism and be heard. It's easy to be heard by conservatives. It's easy to be heard by the people who are already against it. But some people who are sympathetic to woke ideals won't even want to listen to people who might critique it. And I'm wondering, do you care about trying to reach that audience? Do you care about trying to communicate with them, convince them? And do you see any positives in that movement? Or is it just like you got to take it all down? I mean, it's a good question. I think there's you know sort of a division of labor. Like there's people out there who are writers and activists and they are you know, telling you why wokeness is bad. They'll tell you, for example, why, oh, if you think police are racist and, you know, you want to defund the police, why crime rate will go up. They'll tell you why standardized tests are actually more meritocratic than other means and we shouldn't get rid of standardized tests. So I could do that. But like, I think that market is saturated. Like there's tons and tons of people who I think are doing a good job. So I try to find things that other people are not necessarily doing. So I didn't see anyone was really talking about sort of the legal underpinnings of wokeness. There's a adage from Andrew Breitbart that said, you know, politics is downstream of culture. I sort of think it's the opposite. I think these cultural justifications came later after some political decisions were made a long time ago. You could see this, like, for example, and then my book really gets into this, like in the way we classify race, the way we classify race in this country. You know, this is a digression, but, you know, the Asian and the Hispanic categories were created by government before you see them anywhere in like Google books, before you see them showing anywhere in culture. Government literally created race in America, like not blacks and whites, but, but like basically everyone else and Native Americans, basically everyone else was basically grouped according to the ways the, you know, the federal bureaucracy was doing things. And so that's just another reason why I focus on, you know, the aspect of it that I do. As far as like is wokeness, you know, completely wrong, I just write a piece recently, you know, why women rebel against pro-life to the extent that wokeness, you know, has a sort of feminist component that doesn't like sort of people telling women what to do. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't like sort of the anti-wokeness that turns into sort of this moralizing, you know, just wants to take away people's choice. I just like wokeness because I see it as coercive and trying to tell people what to do. I don't like people who take the anti-wokeness and then, you know, try to put more restrictions on people. So to the extent that wokeness is pushing back against some other forces I don't like, you know, I could support that. What is your overall project? What are you trying to do with your work? I'm trying to just to communicate to the world about things that I think are important and interesting. Right now, it's the wokeness stuff. I do think, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, after this, I do sort of get things out of my system and then move on to something else. So I did a lot of foreign policy work, international relations with my focus in grad school. And I did write a book on American foreign policy that sort of, sort of laid out how I think about American foreign policy. And I wrote much less about American foreign policy after that I sort of got it out of my system, right? I, I, you know, I, I gave you 80,000 words, 100,000 words, whatever it was. I'm tapped out. Those are my ideas. And so with wokeness, I think we're getting to that point. I think the book is going to come out and I'm hopefully I'm telling people what this thing is, where it came from, you know, a little bit of why it's bad. But you know, like I said, other people have already told you why it's bad. And then hopefully, you know, I'm going to put out there and say, this is like the political project that takes to change things. And then, you know, who knows, I'll probably move on to something else after that. But yeah, you know, I just want to sort of, you know, I have this need to express myself. And, you know, I enjoy doing it. So I think I'm doing, you know, what's right for me. If you somehow ended up with political power, what kind of country would you want to run? 
you know, I would probably want to run, you know, a free country. <laughs> you know, I, you know I, my, my political views aren't that, you know, unusual, I think, because I take a lot from the right and the left. But no, I mean, I like free markets. To the extent we have government, I think it should be investing in science, technology, and it should be trying to head off existential risk. Culturally, you know, I'm against the wokeness stuff, I think it comes from civil rights law. And I used to maybe have more of a sort of stand on like what the culture should be. But, you know, I've become more of like a libertarian. Things are going to develop the way, you know, they're going to develop. Technology is going to come. Society is going to change. People are going to make their own decisions. So I'm, you know, more comfortable with sort of letting the chips fall where they may on that too. So, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm disappointing people because my politics are sort of boring, even though how I get there is maybe people find interesting. Yeah, that seems to be strategic though, that you want to... Well, you hope that people can become a little bit more boring by poking them a bit and by provoking them with a headline or a framing of a piece. Yeah, but I want to be entertained too. And I want to entertain people. <laughs> this is why I sort of, I love Trump. I mean, every criticism everyone makes of him from the craziest liberal are correct, you know, of course, but he's just entertaining. I don't care. And like a conservatives could say that DeSantis is going to do, you know, X may be more electable and it's going to do X, Y, Z. I'm not 100% sure of that, but, you know, I'm willing to believe it's true. But there's value in being entertained. There's value in just laughing all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of here just to enjoy myself too. What about for the people who are seriously worried about Trump? While acknowledging that to a certain set, he might be entertaining. And they might say, yeah, sure, he's entertaining. People might get a laugh out of him, but this guy is actually seriously destructive as well. Do you think they've got no point? No, they've got a point. I mean, they've got a point. Yeah, definitely. I, I think they've got great points. And, you know, there's a place for serious political analysis and what any particular candidate or what any particular movement or political agenda is going to do to the country. I'm just saying, consider all that. But also, like all else equal, it's better to be funny and entertaining than not. It's going to be Trump versus Biden. And Trump has a reasonable chance of becoming the next president. People don't seem to know how to defeat him, despite having a very live action <laughs> experience with him and four years ago and four years before that. How do you think he can be defeated? So the Republican primary is interesting. So they always had the problem. It's such deja vu. I, mean, I don't know how people remember 2016. But 2016, the problem was the field was divided and nobody would actually attack Trump directly. They're like, Trump is going to go away. And so like Rubio and like, you know, somebody would attack Jeb and somebody would attack Cruz. And you see these people, these candidates, they're all attacking DeSantis. DeSantis is the only guy who's like anywhere near Trump, right? And they're all attacking DeSantis and they're all still afraid to attack Trump. And I think they're just hoping he goes to jail or he drops dead. I mean, it seems like they've completely given up on like any hope with beating him in the Republican primary. I think it might be too late at this point. But this is the genius of Trump. I mean, he made everyone in the party say that he was the legitimate president, that he won the last election, right? So they spent years saying this guy is the legitimate president, but he just got screwed by the Democrats. And then he comes back and now they go say, oh, we don't want, we ought to move on. No, you've been telling people that like Trump is still the legitimate president and he's still the leader of the country and they're all afraid of him and, you know, this and that. So it's sort of too late at this point. But, you know, the Republicans who went to war with them, they didn't do well either. They're like this Cheney, you know, they're out of office. So I think, you know, I wrote this article, The Biomechanics of Trumpism. I think there is just, you know, sometimes a girl just meets a, you know, a guy and he's wrong for it every way, but she's just, she can't quit him. You know, she just has this emotional attachment to it. I think that's Trump with the Republican base. I think it's, you know, it's his party. It's his party as long as he's, you know, he's walking, you know, he's walking and talking. And so I don't think, I don't think you beat him in the Republican primary at this point. How do you beat him in the general? I think it's going to, so you had 2016, you had a, you know, toss up that caved out to a few states. You had 2020, you had a toss up that caved out to the exact same states, right? 2016, it went one way, 2020, it went another. I think it's going to be the same thing in 2024. I don't have some like, you know, I think, you know, the, the standard 
uh, Democrat things. They know what, you know, they know what issues are good for them. Their issues for them are protecting entitlements. Trump, you know, sort of mitigates that a little bit. Their abortion is a good issue for Democrats, although Trump is, you know, very smartly, like showing his good political instincts, triangulating on that too. So yeah, I think it'll probably be Trump and Biden. It'll be a toss-up, but I, you know, I don't have some kind of, you know, great plan to like get the Democrats' odds to like 70% or something. It's probably going to be close to something like 50-50. Point toss. Sounds plausible to me. You also pissing off the right on some things or the cultural right in this moment of the politics that we live in. For example, you wrote a piece defending the mainstream media, yeah. which is not, is not the thing to do. <laughs> well, this is, the, this is getting annoyed by conservatives. That's what I said. Like, sometimes yeah. I get annoyed that I write these left-wing things and this was a perfect example of that. And I think the headline is something along the lines of the mainstream media is good, actually. Why the media is honest and good. I'm knifing them. Even more provocative. (laughs) (laughs) So is that your honestly held opinion? You argued it pretty persuasively and at length. The core of your argument is that the mainstream media, yeah, it's more left, but they're intellectually honest most of the time. They put more rigor into their work. They have standards that they adhere to. Were you trying to poke the beast there from the other side? Or what were you trying to achieve with this piece? Yeah, I think people should have perspective. I mean, so like I said, you know, like the audience sort of in the in the place that I've fallen in sort of shapes sort of what you see. And, you know, people need perspective on all kinds of issues. Like people will like say, you know, we're going to have a civil war or something in the United States. You know, I had an op-ed Washington Post early before I got, you know, when I was just starting out writing, saying, no, there's going to be no civil war in the United States. And, you know, it was like such a like a stupid thing that everyone was like saying was going to happen. I think people say it less now, but people just have no perspective. I mean, the things that people get mad about. And so like the media, look, I talk on the media. I, I say, you know, there are many wrong problems with them. I, I qualify it in many ways, even in that article. But look, what are your expectations for humanity? My expectations of humanity are basically just people are hyper-emotional, know nothing about policy, are just completely tribal, will just make things up. They don't care what's true or false. That's the most successful people on Twitter, to be honest. I mean, there's people with hundreds of thousands or millions, not, you know, all of them, but like, yeah, I mean, this, like a mediocre person, like to become like a person with hundreds of thousands or like a million Twitter followers, that's what they have to do because more people want that than people who want smart policy, you know, analysis. And so it's not that you can't find faults with the media. It's just in this sort of low expectation from humanity, you should be lucky that you live in a country where I could pick up the New York Times or I could pick up the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. And I know they're not making things up, right? They're not saying, you know, the world is run by, you know, satanic pedophiles or, you know, the vaccine is, you know, killing millions of people. I'm just taking some things that are, you know, on the right. Even the stuff that I think that they're very wrong about, like on the race stuff, their facts are not just usually not just completely made up. Like they say there was this police shooting, you know, here. They'll describe it in the right way, right? They'll describe like, you know, do our best well, do whatever. might be an unfair, you know, framing, or they might bring in facts that I don't like. They might put an ideological spin on it. Of course, they do do all that. But, you know, like the basics of they will give you the facts that are actually true is, you know, it's something of a miracle. It's not necessarily the best business decision. Like, I don't know, if like the New York Times just wanted to just for their audience, just make things up about Trump. Like, just started publishing, like, this salacious stuff about, like, him. And, you know, the conservatives will say they did this to a certain extent with the Russia thing. I think that's overblown. I mean, I don't think that they were, like, making up facts. They were, a lot of times, reporting when intelligence agencies or the CIA or the FBI were telling them. But I tend to think that might actually be a better business model for them. But no, I think there is some, you know, idea that, you know, there are professional ethics there, right? And that's the argument, right? Like, look, 
This is not just, you know, talking to the right, because there's a lot of, you know, far left people, you know, people who, you know, are friends of maybe Glenn Greenwald, Russell Brand, like sort of like at least, you know, people who are maybe far left or maybe centrist left and just sympathize with the right. They often tend to hate the media, too. I'm just saying, like, look, it's got its problems, sure. Here's one way to put it. If we woke up tomorrow and we heard that the New York Times burned to the ground and the company was like, didn't exist anymore, I think that a large portion of conservatives would celebrate that, right? Like, you know, particularly the influencers on Twitter, maybe 60, 70% of them would say, you know, probably more than that, would say it's a great thing. And I'm saying like, is it for all your criticism of the New York Times, like, no, you would have much less knowledge about the world. We'd be operating more in the dark. Society would function less well. And criticize New York Times all you want, but just, you know, keep that in mind. Does New York Times fit into your enlightened centrist framework? I mean, there's uh, writers who do and writers who don't. So it's a very big institution. So yeah, it covers, covers the heart of the spectrum. So you think about enlightened centrism in terms of individuals who are willing to speak out against orthodoxies in their own tribes. Yeah, that, but you know, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, some people do do that, but you know, I, I really struggled with sort of framing this article because it's, you know, there's a couple different paths you can go. And I just settled on something sort of vanilla and set of line centrist and just like listed things. It's not as a systematic as a lot of the things I write. I'm just sort of, you know, putting things together that I think make for a good thinker. And it's not necessarily the most elegant theory. But yeah, I think it's more, you know, just sort of analytic reasoning. Like, look, you can follow their chain of thought. You know, there's a lack of sort of conspiratorial mindset. I think a lot of wokeness is this. I think a lot of the right-wing stuff about where wokeness comes from and what liberals are doing falls into this sort of conspiratorial or conspiratorially-minded sort of outlook of the world. I think if they like people are familiar with like the analytic versus continental philosophy divide, it's sort of people who are more on the analytic side. And so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the motivation for that article was like, the people who I read, you know, they tends to be an audience. It tends to be, you know, a collection of people who on average agree with me more than, you know, the people I don't read. But there's wide variation in that. It was just sort of me trying to figure out and explain sort of who I enjoy reading and what qualities I look for. And what do you think about this media environment that we're operating in with things like Twitter and other social media and exacerbating or really ratcheting up some of the tribalism, some of the emotionality, some of the less analytical sides of things. Is that an environment you enjoy operating in or are you trying to fix problems with that? Am I trying to fix problems with that? No, I wouldn't say so. But yeah, I do think that you're right about this. And that I remember when I was a kid, so I feel lucky because I'm just old enough to remember sort of politics before the internet, just old enough, like I was a kid. And in the 1990s, if like you knew somebody who was into politics, like who was like a teenager or like a preteen, your stereotype was like, this is like the most boring, uptight, like uninteresting, you know, guy, like a 20 year old to be into politics. And he's probably just like wears suits and like goes to like, you know, city hall meetings and just like does this, you know, boring thing, watches C-SPAN all day because we didn't have Trump. I mean, we had Trump, but not, not political Trump. <laughs> you know, we did really, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have cable news. If you wanted politics, you would either read a newspaper or you would watch like CNN and CNN was like much more state at the time. It wasn't like, it wasn't trying to be as, you know, exciting as it is today. Or you would, you know, watch C-SPAN or you'd read like, you know, some uh, you know, fancy magazine like National Review or you'd watch CBS or ABC, right? There wasn't a lot of options. And it was all just like, you know, people in, you know, formal attire, reading the news, making it as boring as possible, talking about budgets. And 
you know, Fox News and talk radio were sort of a, like the first wave of like making it actually entertainment. You know, this came from the right. And then you have sort of the internet. And of course, you know, the left, you know, they have, you know up to today, we have these Twitter influencers, you have TikTok. And yeah, I mean, part of it is we just made these things very, very entertaining. I mean, I think a lot of the Black Lives Matter, a lot of the Lucas stuff, there were just these videos that would go viral about, you know, you know, incidents between police and young black men. And these really fit a narrative and these things took off. And, you know, Trump was entertaining the trans issue. People, you know, just, they find it fascinating. They find it funny. They find it, you know, maddening, right? And so, yeah, we've made politics very, very entertaining. In the ideal world, you know, I think it would be more boring. I think it would be sort of something more like the 1990s where people who maybe had some intellectual interest who like, you know, learning about the law or like learning about public policy or how the, you know, federal budget works. Those, you know, weird people would be the ones in the <laughs> politics. Not the people who like Jerry Springer, you know, God rest his soul, he just, just passed. Or, uh, you know, people who watch professional wrestling. I mean, we had that as part of the culture of the 1990s. It hadn't merged with politics, right? But now that stuff has seemed to merge with politics. And I think we're not in a good place there. And I think people take this as like, oh, like, you know, they try to explain it like, oh, the left has gotten so crazy or it's like this right-wing threat. And like, yeah, I mean, those are all true, but it's all part of the same process of like politics becoming more inclusive and sort of becoming our entertainment. I'm trying to fix some things. I'm not necessarily trying to fix that, except to the extent that I say, look, tribalism is stupid and here's what's going on here in my opinion. And I'm smarter than other people, but I'm not like, you know, I'm not trying to like bankrupt the institutions that <laughs> I think are responsible. Yeah, that's for other people yeah. Right, but you are making a gentle sort of protest by highlighting these writers and thinkers who you might disagree with politically, but you can at least have a civil conversation with, which is counter to what works on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. So you mentioned people in Latin centrism piece, people like Freddie DeBoer, Matt Iglesias, Noah Smith from yeah. the left, and then Slate South Codex in the middle, and Steve Saylor on the right is one name I can remember, but there are other names there that you felt like these are intellectually honest people who yeah. will not disregard a conversation with you simply because of your tribal affiliation. Yeah, that's part of it. And I should say, I'm not like I'm so like, oh, I'm the one improving the discourse and everyone else is making it, you know, it's so terrible. Like, no, I'm, I'm a bit of a troll. I mean, I do sort of enjoy this. It's, it's part of me. I have this part of me that likes the sort of just the budgets and the, you know, the policy and the ideas. And I think this is actually sort of rare. I don't think many people do like love both these parts of politics to the same extent that I do. Like right. some people, like people, they like the trolling and they like the fighting and they like the enjoyment or they, you know, they're just policy people. And I think just very, I really, <laughs> I sort of leave a thing of one who just really, you know, loves both of it. But, you know, to the extent that that side of me is obviously part of the problem, I have to say that. Why do you think of yourself as a bit of a troll and why do you do that? I just, you know, I enjoy it. I mean, I liked sports growing up. Like before I was into politics, I was really into sports. So I like, it's like this, you know, I like, you know, hit geopolitics, history, war, like, you know, the spirit of the sort of like male competition kind of thing. And then politics has that. And then politics also on top of it has these different level deals with these interesting sociological and actual policy societal issues. And so it's like that combination of like the, you know, it's like the intellectual interest in it, plus the sociological interest, plus the sort of just the tribal battle, put that all together. That to me is like the best show on earth. You know, in defense of myself, sometimes I think that like there are some movements or some arguments that are so stupid that like sometimes mockery or like a little bit of, you know, trolling on some issues is the right way to go, right? It's like some things are just like, you can't engage with people who deny basic biology, who deny, you know, basic statistics. I mean, I 
people go to my, you know, Twitter, they could see examples of this. But look, people who are, you know, who are polite and who are trying to have a conversation, who I think are, you know, intelligent and, you know, trying to, you know, learn something, then, you know, I try to be civil. I try to tone it down a little bit. So it's all a judgment call. It's not a science exactly. Do you like being difficult to pass in some regards? I mean, pass, P-A-R-S-E. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got you. The That's way, for the listeners as much as you. <laughs> I don't think I'm that difficult to parse. I think if you ran into me for the first time, maybe you would say, oh, this guy doesn't fit into one bucket or the other. But I think that people who follow me for a while, they do sort of see, you know, I do have a consistent set of beliefs and a consistent way of looking at the world. You know, but like having some things I say where it's like half joking and half serious and like, you know, people sort of have to wonder. And sometimes I don't even know, like, you know, am I serious? Is this my opinion? I don't know. It sort of is, but it's just sort of funny to say, you know, yeah, that adds to just the fun of it. I have one thing in mind there, which is you're a critic of work culture and work politics and a critic of some trans activist stuff. And yet the other day you posted a video by Dylan Mulvaney. Yeah, yeah. It's gone through all this cultural war stuff around the Bud Light sponsorship deal, an important trans entertaining yeah. leadership figure for many people. And Dylan posted a video to TikTok after her first statement after all the Bud Light stuff had happened and was saying, this has been a really difficult time, but I'm not going away. And I hope you guys will stick around for what I have to say that's not just related to identity. And you tweeted about it and celebrated it as a good yeah. statement. And yeah. to me, actually, it looks like you were being sincere and you were saying this is modeling good behavior. But a lot of your followers were like, what yeah. the fuck? What, are, yeah. are you trolling us? <laughs> well, you, you're very perceptive. Yes, that was serious. Now, the Dylan Mulvaney thing is is fascinating, right? Because like I get all the criticisms of the trans stuff. I think that, you know, what they, you know they're, they're teaching kids in schools and like men in women's locker rooms, you know, all that. Yeah, I agree with those, those criticisms. But the Dylan Mulvaney thing is a very interesting because like, why did they lose their minds over this one, you know, guy or girl, whatever, whatever you want to, you whatever you want to classify, right? Why? And like these people, they love Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner is like on, you know, Fox News, you know, every night. And it's not like Mulvaney, you know, was like competing in like the decathlon or something. She wasn't like, you know, winning swim beats. Like, you know, then you see these things where they get mad about and, you know, it makes sense. This was just like, you know, a goofy person acting goofy and being positive. And it drove them up the wall. And I was just sort of, what's going on here? Now, what's going on here, I think. Is like, okay, it's a way to be like sort of, at, you know, the general anger of trans. But it's like, because Dylan Mulvaney was just like sort of what they see it as like an obnoxious male who's acting like sort of, the, I've seen people call it like a minstrel show of women, right? And so I think that like, it's like this conservative thing where like they don't like guys acting like sissies. And this is sort of what they see as going out here. Well, Caitlyn, it's funny, like puts on like a cocktail dress and like says she loves Republicans. And then they're okay. It's the tribal thing where it's like, this is our trans and this is like the other trans, but that it's like, there's a certain kind of trans that really pisses them off. But if you just look at Dylan Mulvaney, I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a very positive individual, right? It's like, of all the trans stuff to get mad at, that's probably the last thing you should get mad at. But the fact that it was like the thing they got most mad at was, I think, you know, very interesting. What do you think is going to come of these culture wars? I think that people think that like, you know, the trends will just like sort of continue forever. And then like, you know, we're just going to get to some like singularity or it's like we have this left wing totalitarian government or nothing. But no, I, I think that these things sort of tend to go in cycles. And I do think that, you know, thanks to my work, some work of some other people, thanks to the activism from like Chris Rufo and people like that, you will not only see just the natural tendency of things to just sort of cycle, but you will also see like political pushback 
that will make a difference. So, you know, long term, I'm bullish that this is not going to be that big of an issue going forward. It's going to still be huge. I mean, it's like instead of being like, you know, 70% of a political discourse, it'll be 40% of the political discourse or something like that. But I do think we're going to get to a point where like we're going to go through a cycle where we're not thinking about this stuff all that much. I think the racial differences in sort of crime and socioeconomic status. That's been driving people crazy since the 1960s. There's no hint that that's going to get solved in, you know, the last 60 years. It's not going to get solved in the next 60 years. And so I think that's going to boil over and that's going to be an issue. It's just a question of how salient it is in our politics. And like I said, you know, we sort of, we go back and forth with these things. And what's your place in this media landscape going to be as it continues to evolve? I don't know. You know, this book will come out. I have, you know, high hopes that it'll have some kind of policy influence and sort of make a difference in how people approach these issues and think about them. But, you know, as far as long-term plans after that, you know, I think I'll continue to be writing exactly what or what my influence will be. You know, that's still to be determined. I usually finish these interviews by asking writers to nominate or mention other writers on Substack who they think are worth more attention. Do you have three or four on top of your head? Yes. I haven't given you any full warnings. So this is very unfair of me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. I, I mean, I could name people that people know, like Scott Alexander and Iglesias. Those are great. Those are two that I particularly, but you know, most people who heard of me probably heard of them. There's a guy named Trevor Klee who doesn't blog that often, but I recently cited him in my article on why people shouldn't read most books. There's another guy, Emil Kierkegaard, really good with statistics and a lot of, you know, sort of controversial topics. And there's this other guy who's pretty new. Named, I think you pronounce it Cremieux-Recule. I think it's French. So that's C-R-E-M-I-E-U-X space R-E-C-U-E-I-L or just Cremieux, the first part, .substack.com. He's great too. And yeah, I think those are probably the main ones that I'm reading right now that are, you know, probably a little bit flying under the radar. Got it. Well, fascinating conversation. Thanks very much for joining us on The Active Voice. Thank you, Amish. You can find Richard Hanania on Substack at richardhanania.com. That's Richard, H-A-N-A-N-I-A.com. See you next time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com.